Thank you for tuning in. We trust you will feel encouraged, uplifted, and inspired to build God's kingdom with us. Enjoy the message. Great to be here this evening, and I am so honored to be able to proclaim God's word among you. And so this evening, we're going to be looking at the gospel of Luke chapter 10, uh, and looking at the story, a familiar story of the Good Samaritan. But I think we live in a, a crazy world, don't we? We live in a, a crazy city. We live in a world that is so unpredictable. We never know what is going to happen. The newspapers, the news headlines are indicative of this. We never know what's ever going to happen in our city. And, and as a result of this, I think many of us live sort of high-stress lives, never knowing what to expect. Added to that, we are bombarded all the time with, with news on Facebook, fake news all around about all kinds of things. Every robot has a need. In fact, you could probably do your monthly shopping at the robots in the city of Johannesburg if you really wanted to. Every person, though, has a story, and here's the deal. It's very easy for us to become anesthetized to the needs of our culture and the needs of our society. It's easy for us to turn a blind eye and walk away in our culture. So I wonder, is there a better way? Is there a a different way? You see, the culture of the kingdom of God redefines our relationships with people. The culture of the kingdom of heaven redefines how we relate to those around us. Isn't it Jesus who said, by this you will know, uh, that, you know, by this the world will know if uh, you love me. Uh, What does it say? Do you remember? By this, if you have love for one another. So, so here's the thing, the culture of the kingdom of God, a culture of love, a culture of compassion has to redefine our lives and our ministry. Yet this next slide tells the story of South Africa. On the 13th of May, this article was published in Time Magazine. In fact, the cover of Time Magazine read this, South Africa, the world's most unequal country. On the one side, we have the the beauty and the wealth and the the, the serenity of the suburbs of most places in middle-class South Africa. And on the other side, we have the reality of informal settlements and squatter camps that are right around our country in many senses. We live with this reality daily. On top of this, I guess the inconvenient truth is that the world we live in is is full of pride, full of prejudice. In fact, if we look closer to our own lives and hearts, we are riddled with this kind of stuff. Ultimately, what's in our hearts flows out into our actions and in our relationships with other people. I wonder, is there a better way? Is there a different kind of way? Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Luke chapter 10, verses 25. If you don't have your Bible, it's on the screen above. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. What arrogance this is, right? Testing Jesus? Wow. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus says, do this and you will live. 
That's a sermon right there. Jesus has given the answer. Do this. Love God passionately and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law. This sums up who God is. Do this and you will live abundantly. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus this great question, and and who is my neighbor? He asked this question because I guess we all ask this question, who exactly, Jesus, do I need to love? Who exactly is it that is deserving of my care and my attention? Surely not that person. Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, And here's the story that we know so well, perhaps, if we grew up in church. So come with me on a journey. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now that sounds like a scene somewhere in Johannesburg, doesn't it, right? We're familiar with this. Verse 31, a priest... (laughs) The man of God happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side of the road. So to a Levite, when he saw or came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here we have two people that you would think in our culture should help. If anyone is is to have compassion on people, surely it's the pastor or the elder or the church leader. They are the ones who should have compassion on others, right? They are the ones who should care. But what we see in this text is Jesus is contrasting the behavior of his so-called religious people with the Samaritans to provide a helpful paradigm for kingdom living. And he's going to call us in a moment time to embrace a different kind of countercultural paradigm for ministry in this world that we so desperately need. The priest was in the Old Testament one who mediated the presence of God. He served in the temple. He gave sacrifices on behalf of the people for the atonement of the nation of Israel. The priests were important people in the nation of Israel, yet this priest was just not bothered. He was just too busy. He just perhaps couldn't care. Maybe he didn't want to become unclean. Or maybe he just didn't really care. The Levites and its attendants in the temple, you you would think would maybe pay some attention, but he didn't. He just did the same thing. He walked on by. These next three words define what Jesus is about to teach this Jewish audience. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. I want you to picture the, the worst kind of person that you could probably imagine in your own mind right now. To a Jew, a Samaritan was that kind of person. A person who was completely hated, completely rejected, completely set aside in their culture. They were no one to the Jewish people. And so if you study the history of where the Samaritans came from, while the Jewish people were in exile, some stayed in the land. And instead of sticking with their own culture and living among their own people and marrying among their own people, they intermarried with some of the the tribes of the nations around them. And and so the Jewish people looked at them as corrupt. And they they kind of mixed their, 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 their religion with other people and were rejected as a result of this. 
And so this, the hero of this story is mind-blowing in many senses because to a Jewish audience, it should have been a priest or, or a holy person. But here Jesus intentionally uses the least in society, the marginalized, the, the underdog, the person you would least expect to deliver a different kind of outcome. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to, to the man. He went to him and, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and, and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extras that you may have had. The priest and the Levites walked by on the other side. Yet what we see over here is this, this Samaritan had compassion. This Samaritan was willing to give of his time. This Samaritan was willing to get down and dirty and pour some of his own wine, his own oil on the wounds of, of this person who was broken and beaten and left to die half dead on the side of the road. He honored his word. Follow with me, verse 36. Jesus asks this great question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The experts in the law replied, and notice he couldn't even say the name of the people, the one, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Why is this so important? I, I think in a sense, there will always be hatred, there will always be bitterness, there will always be anger in the world in which we live. We don't have to go far to see these kinds of things and narratives at play in the world. There will always be discontentment, there will always be all kinds of strife and difficulties in life. Because we live in a fallen, a sinful, a messed up and, and broken world. And maybe you've experienced some of those things in your own very life. Yet we see this should not be the norm for Christians. I'm increasingly seeing that, that Christians, when they disagree with someone, not only disagree with them, but vilify them. Not only do they vilify them, but they, they go on and they propagate gossip about that particular person. We live in a culture and a society where it's very hard to kind of love our neighbor. It's very hard for us to, to even see that there is a need to love people beyond ourselves because our culture is so focused on our needs, our desires, and our wants. Yet love was at the center of God's plan for the world. Love is not a New Testament concept. Love is not something that comes when Jesus comes in the New Testament. Love is rooted in the very nature of God because God said, I am love. I am love. And therefore, we are defined or should be defined by love because love is the very essence and nature of our God. Yet how do people see us in our culture? People see us as anathema to others in our culture. People see us coming and, and walk the other way. Why? Because we've been known not for our love, but for our hate. Not for our acts of compassion, but for our hypocrisy. And this is where we are in our culture. Yet love is at the center of God's plan. 
Well, where do you find this in the Bible? Well, have a look at Leviticus 19 as an example. When last did you have a quiet time there? It says this in verse 18, 34, and 33, you will love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When a foreigner who resides in your land with you, you shall not oppress them. The foreigner who resides with you shall be able to be as a citizen among you. You will love the foreigner as yourself because you once were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You see what God does there? You will love people because you too were once where they are. We look at culture and we look at people that we know sometimes and, and we put limitations on God and we say, Whew, but you don't know my neighbor, man. You don't know this guy at my work. You don't know this girl. The reality is, man, I don't know, even know if God could reach that person. Hear me. No one is beyond the reach of God Almighty. No one is too far gone down the road that God cannot rescue no one is beyond the love of God. No one is beyond the reach of God. And God's desire is that we as his people will show his love to those in our world. Zechariah 7 and verse 9, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. But it's hard. It's hard. Because it seems like there are some people that only God can love, right? Or is it just me? <laughs> some people, when you, when you get to know them, it seems like it's only God who can love this person. They're so hard to be with. They're so difficult. They're so argumentative. They could never, ever be pleased. Whereas loving his neighbor seemed so easy for Jesus. <laughs> Matthew 14, when he landed and he saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Mark 6, when Jesus landed and saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. See, God's design for his church is that we as God's people live as Jesus lived. 1 John 2 says this, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live as Jesus lives must walk as Jesus walked. In other words, what the writer is saying over here, you can't claim to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet the evidence of the fruits of your life is the exact opposite of that. You can't claim to love God, yet hate your neighbor, because the reality is you can't hate a people and reach them at the same time. You can't hate a person and then expect God to use you to reach them. It doesn't work like that. And it seems to me as though many of our churches and many of our Christians have, have seen their faith as gathering on a Sunday, bunkering down in our church ghettos, you know, because the world is so bad and evil outside and we're trying to preserve what is good over here and we're afraid, we're scared of things outside in the world and we just reject people, reject all kinds of opportunities because we don't see what God has put right in front of us. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And so the purpose of this parable, 
is twofold, I guess. Number one, to expose the religious perceptions of people and compare them to authentic Christian living. And secondly, to answer this all-important question, who is my neighbor? You see, the reality is that, that loving our neighbor is God's plan for reaching the world. Overcoming the obstacles that prevent people from loving their neighbor is something that has to be part of our plan and our heart's desire. You are God's great plan to reach the world. You are great, God's great plan to impact the lives of people around you. But we have to overcome a number of barriers, and, and here's some of them. Now, number one, I guess, is the way we categorize people. The way we categorize people. So we meet people for the first time and, and we, we kind of make up our mind about their importance in our lives within the first 30 seconds of our interactions with them, don't we? We kind of place them, oh, they kind of fit somewhere in over here. And then our behavior is driven according to our estimation of them. Sometimes it's the way that we've been programmed. We've, we've been brought up in a certain way with a certain mindset. And so when we automatically meet people, whoever that person may be in our culture, we have already a predetermined mindset about that person before they've even opened their mouths. Another obstacle is the priority of me first. We live in this culture. It's all about me. It's all about my needs. It's all about my wants. It's all about what I want to see. And what we're seeing in the city of Johannesburg, and I, I grew up in Johannesburg, I've lived here for most of my life, and, and what we're seeing is, is churches in Johannesburg that are full of spiritual babies, who are still drinking the milk of the Word of God, and who are not enjoying the meat of the Word of God, because as soon as someone says something to them, as soon as the pastor challenges them, or as soon as they feel a little bit of uncomfortability or discomfort, what do they do? Move off in a half and go to the next church. And so we're not impacting our culture because we're driven by our needs, our wants, and our preferences. Some of us are just like the priests and the Levites in the story. We're not engaging. We're not loving. We're about our own business. We're about our own business. Ultimately, there's an identity crisis among Christians in our life. Yet we see that the culture of the kingdom of God, being a citizen of God's kingdom, redefines how we relate to people. If we believe in Jesus, who is the good news of the gospel, who is the word of God, that has to redefine how we relate to people. It does. You can't meet Jesus and live your life the same way you've always lived your life. You can't meet Jesus and not be transformed by the power of the gospel. Paul expresses this in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, come on, say, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Amen? That word new in the Greek is the Greek word kainos, which means qualitatively new. In other words, it's not Hong Kong, it's not made in China. God creates something that is qualitatively new and qualitatively different in your life and in your heart. You can't follow Jesus and stay the same. So the question really is, well, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? 
when I look at my life and my relationship with my wife, who I love greatly, I've got one wife and three daughters. So that means, A, I'm the only male in my house. Even the dogs are female in my house. So you need to pray for me, right? Secondly, that, that means I'm a poor man because all of these girls love shoes and handbags and have expensive tastes. I'm praying for their husbands one day. But I cannot say to my wife, hey, hey, Laura, man, I just love you so much. You're the most awesome woman in the world. You're so beautiful. You're just so gorgeous. And, and, uh, and I never show her how much I love her. That doesn't make sense, does it, right? I can't just say that I love someone without expressing that love by my actions. And so we do all kinds of crazy things, don't we? You know, all sorts of amazing, ridiculous acts of love like Stu over there. I mean, up in the mountains. And man, that's, that's awesome. So ladies, if someone, if your boyfriend takes you to the mountains, I'm just telling you, you know what's gonna happen, right? You know what's going to happen. Follow these examples. You know what's going to happen. He's going to pop the question. So you need to come up with some other creative ideas over here. The, the truth is we all look for evidence in our lives that confirm reality. Evidence that confirms reality. Evidence that I'm a good father is not just me thinking I'm a good father. It's me being there for my kids. Me showing up at matches. Me cheering uh, on the soccer field for my daughter when she scores a goal. Man, I just love those kind of things. But again, love is evidenced through our behavior, not just our words. Love is demonstrated in our posture, in our actions, in our, in our very heart. I can't say I love my wife if I wake up in the morning and I don't even say, hey, how are you doing, love? I don't talk to her. I walk right past her and I make myself a cup of coffee and I fry myself an egg and some bacon. Now, what are you having for breakfast, lover? Good, good on you. What kind of a life will I have? Pretty bad life, right? I'm spending a lot of time on the couch. You see, what is the evidence that we are being a good neighbor? What is the evidence that we are living out this principle, which is a primary principle for Christians in the world? What is the evidence that we look for? So, so come with me as we explore this this evening. The first one is, the first evidence is we are no longer preoccupied with ourselves. Philippians 2 verses 3 to 5 says something very difficult, but it's in the Bible and I can't take it out. It's there, right? Do what? Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. You see, the good Samaritan did not consider his own needs above the needs of the person who was broken and hurting on the side of the road. The, the good Samaritan considered this person who we did not know to have great value in the eyes of God, value that determined his behavior, which determined how he took care of this person. I wonder, are we so preoccupied with our lives that we miss the brokenness of hurting people all around us? Are we so preoccupied with our careers that we miss out on opportunities that God gives us along the way to make much of His name and to glorify Him? Are we so preoccupied with our own image, our own abilities, our own giftedness, our own talents, our, our own stuff that we don't see what other people are going through? Because as a church, we're called the body of Christ Christ. 
And a healthy ecclesiology or a healthy understanding of the church is, is understanding that we're a loving community. And the love of Jesus is found among the people of God. Why is it that so many of us are not bothered by other people in our lives? Look at the book of Acts chapter 2, a phrase that stands out to me and hits me every time is this simple phrase, and they enjoyed the favor of all people. In other words, the early Christians lived their lives in such a way that all people looked favorably upon them. All people wanted them and, and needed them and saw value in their belief because they felt their love. But so many of us are so preoccupied with our own lives. And, and we measure our lives against the lives of others instead of the, against the nature of God and, and that which is expressed within the Word of God Himself. We kind of say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as that person, man. I mean, I, I don't do what they do. I don't say what they say. And that kind of makes us look like we're better people than them. But the standard for our morality is not the standard set by God, but other people that we measure ourselves against. And we're called not to measure ourselves with other people, but to measure ourselves with God himself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. Is that easy? No. Is it possible? Absolutely. That's what God desires. But we live in this world that is so preoccupied with individualism and consumerism that it's hard in our culture and in our moment right now to see past ourselves. The second thing I see in this text as an evidence of being a neighbor is that we look for ways to be a blessing to other people. Man, I live a busy life. So do you. We live in this crazy city of Johannesburg. There's all, all kinds of things happening all around us. We have responsibilities. We have things to do. I, I get that. But sometimes we need to ask ourselves, is there more to my life than this? Wake up in the morning have breakfast, drink my coffee, hit traffic, go to work, do my thing, work extra hours, come home through the traffic or after the traffic, eat my dinner, go to bed, repeat, repeat. Is there more to life than this? Lord, help me. There must be more to life than this, right? If this is what this life is all about, I don't want to live this life. Jesus said, didn't he, John 10 and verse 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, right? So there must be more to life than this. I remember we lived in Botswana for some time, and you know what they say about, uh, about the, the church, you know, God will keep you humble and the church will keep you poor. And so uh, we were towards the end of the month in, in the city of Khabarone, and I asked my wife, I said, hey love, you know, I really would like a slice of chocolate cake. Now if you look at me, you know I don't need a slice of chocolate cake, right? But, but here's the deal, I mean, I love chocolate cake. I'm allergic to the gym. Every time I go to the gym, I break into a sweat, man. It's hard, it's, it's really, really tough. And I said to her, can't we just go to Mug and Bean and get a nice slice of chocolate cake? And, and so she said to me, no. I said, what? She, I'm the head of my home. <clears throat> well, I didn't say that at all because I'm not the head of my home. Jesus is the head of my home. That's at least that's what I say to her or something like that. She said, no, we don't have money. I said, oh, wow, things must be really tough. We don't have money. Oh, we don't have money, okay. So then she says these feared words that every man doesn't like to hear. Well, how about we go to the shops and walk around? 
And so in my mind, there is like some kind of short circuit. Like, but what comes up my mouth is, sure, love. Sure, love. And so we go to the shops and man, Chabarone is annoying. First generation drivers, parking is a nightmare. People park in three lanes, two lanes on. Oh, so getting to parking is a problem. And so my blood pressure is already up and we're walking around the shop and I'm just thinking, who in their right mind, who doesn't have money, will walk around the shops? For what? For what? And I'm holding her hand, and life is good, and I'm smiling. And, and all of a sudden, we're walking past Woolworths, and I'm trying to get past Woolworths pretty fast. And, and this, this tiny little Korean lady from our church, we had a large church, and I don't know her name at all. Um, I couldn't probably pronounce it. And so, so she says to me, come, pastor, come, pastor. And so I'm thinking, oh, great. Where are we going now? Come, pastor. And she grabs her hand, and she, she takes us into Woolworths. And so I'm thinking, what's going on over here? Why are you taking us into Woolworths? And she gives us a trolley and she says, push for me. <sighs> Great. Great. I could have been at home. But no, you wanted me to come to the shops. This is, and so you know how we fight. It's all your fault. Look what has happened. You know. Anyway, so we go to the shops and we're walking around. And, and she takes us to the, the one aisle. And she, she goes to the, the products and she picks it up, looks at it, looks at me. You like Yes, I, I like. She puts it in the trolley. I'm thinking, okay, this is weird. And so every item she looks at, she looks at the item and she says, you like? And so I'm like, yeah, I like. She goes down the chocolate aisle, you know, that, that, that amazing pudding aisle of Woolworths, right, where the nice decadent, sponge, soft chocolate cake is dripping with ganache and, and topped with nuts and just a few cherries just to kind of, oh, she says, you like? Oh, yes, I like, I like. And so as we're walking around, I'm kind of going, okay, but now who's paying for the stuff? <laughs> so I look at my wife and I, I laugh and I say, <laughs> you see, now if you just gave me my one piece of chocolate cake, you'd be fine. Now you're going to pay for her groceries. And uh, so we, we went to the till, and, and I was really nervous because I don't know who's going to pay for this stuff. And I, don't know, I, I was so clueless as to what was happening. And so she whipped out a card, and she paid, and I, I kind of walked away from there as soon as I could and said, bye now, bye, and just sort of walked away. And she said, no, pastor, no, pastor, don't go. <sighs> what now? What's going to happen now? And she looks at me and says, not mine. This is for you. And I was like, Wow. I was mind blown. I was mind blown because here's the thing. My request for chocolate cake wasn't something that I needed. It was something that I selfishly desired. And I wasn't even praying for it. Honestly, I wasn't. At that point, I was just praying, let's get out of the shopping center as quickly as we can. Let's get out of here. I wasn't worried about that. But, but God saw a need. And God had a person in the place where we were, who, who came to us and who supplied our need. And not only did I get a slice of chocolate cake, right? I got the whole cake. It was amazing. It was, it was so good. But, but here's the thing. When we're living our life, do we see other people? 
When we're walking in the shops, are we even tuned into the Spirit of God who, who may lead us to someone who may use us as a conduit or a, a channel of blessing to other people? Man, I know I'm the worst. I don't see anything in the shops. All I'm trying to do is just get through this, this experience of torture or purgatory. Lord, save me now. I mean, I'm so busy in life. I drive in my car. I don't even see the red robot. I mean, I just go breakthrough, right through. I mean, just go right through. I, we're so, we live lives that are so easily distracted. I wonder, what would it mean for you just to hit pause or slow motion and say, Lord, how can I be a blessing to people? Now, now please, I mean, hey, it might be a good thing. Buy your pastor some chocolate cake. That's a good thing, right? But, but, but here's the thing. How about asking, how can I be a blessing to people that are my neighbors? How can I serve my community? How can I help those that, that are broken? How can I help those that are beaten? How can I help those that are half dead? Because the, the world we live in is a world that is spiritually dead. People are not only not having physical things, but, but they're going to a Christless eternity. And we just walk around and do our thing as if it's no one's business. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be the hope of the world. You as believers here should be the conduit of God's blessing to people all around you. So don't be busy about your own business. Consider others and look for ways, practical ways you can be a blessing to people. Linked to this, the third principle from this text is develop a culture of giving, not just trying to get more. You see, we give because God gave. We give because God is a generous God. We just have to look to the cross to see the extent of his generosity. God did not hold back, but he gave his only son. God gave lavishly, superfluously, whatever kind of adjective you can add over there. Look at Google, I don't know, figure something out. God gave generously. He poured out his love for us on the cross. He wasn't here to be served, he says, but I'm here to serve. So many people come to church and say, hey, come on, serve me. Serve me, give to me. What about my kids? What about my family? What about my needs? Give, 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 give. And we look to the leaders of the church, the pastors of the church, as if they are the ones who should supply our every need and satisfy our every demand. We don't have superhero pastors. Let me let you in on a secret. If you cut us, we bleed. We're not here to satisfy your needs and your wants and your desires as the church. Read Ephesians 4. What does it say? God has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the equipping of God's people for the work of ministry. So God has gifted his church with people and, and personnel. And, and so we must stop asking to just get, 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 and say, oh Lord, how can I give? How can I give? How can I serve? How can I give of my time? How can I give of my resources, of my finance, of, of all areas of my life? You see, this is countercultural. 
Because the world we live in is all about what we can get out of it. Our life is all about how much we can earn, how much we can consume. It's dominated by the accumulation of wealth and goods. We are measured not by our identity in Christ, but by how much our balance sheet is at the end of the day, or how much our retirement savings may be. We are, we are defined by so many other things, but brothers and sisters, this should not be in the kingdom of God. Because we should be developing a culture of giving and serving just like Jesus did. The truth is, we sometimes love money more than we love Jesus. We love the idea of our career or our identity or our security more than we trust in God. We are paralyzed in our culture by pervasive idolatry that dominates our lives, that messes with our minds. We've got to get out of that. You know what we do? We give it away. We give our time. We serve. We help the, the hurting and the broken because that's what Jesus did. If you don't believe me, read Philippians 2. He, Jesus, King of the, the, the heavens, did not consider equality with God something to be selfishly held onto. But he gave himself to death on the cross. I wonder if we could give ourselves, because we've got to give ourselves to something, right? Brings us to the fourth point here, and we're drawing to a close in a minute, but, but we've got to give ourselves to address, addressing real issues in life and in our culture. We've got to give ourselves to be the light and the salt of this world. This parable is so relevant for us today because we have become distracted. We don't see people. We don't see our neighbor. All we see is our church friends. All we see are people who are like us or who like us or who we are like. We don't see anyone else, do we? We are busy. We are sometimes holier than we ought to be. We are isolated, insulated, religious without much faith. Yet as the church, we are the only organization that exists for the benefit of those who are not yet members. Do you know why you're here tonight? You're here so that God's spirit may work powerfully in your heart, shape and transform your mind so that wherever you go tomorrow, whatever you say tomorrow, whatever you do tomorrow would lead people to love Jesus more and to follow after him who is our savior. We're to be equipped for works of service. We're to be encouraged and spur one another on to say, you can do it, you can run the race, you can finish, you can serve Jesus, and you can bring glory to his name. We're not here just to have our needs met. We're the people of God in a broken, lost, messed up world. But we're a church on a mission. A mission that is shaped by love, a mission that is molded by the very nature of God. And so our greatest concern should be, how do we please God? How do we please God? What is your, your life's mission and purpose? Simple question is, perhaps this evening, what are we willing to pay for the one who gave it all? You see, it's easy to follow Jesus when, when we're on the mountaintop. It's easy to follow Jesus when things are going great. But what about the valleys? What about the tough times? You see, we're called to love God passionately. But out of loving God passionately, the result is that we're called to love others with that same love 
the love of God. A love in the New Testament is described as the Greek word achape, which is a, a love that moves away from egocentric self willing to please the other person. Do you have that love in your life and in your heart? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Firstly, I think we need to return to a serious reading and application of God's word. I want you to look at verse 26 here. It says, Jesus responds and says simply this, what is written in the law? You see, as believers, we're not defined by the world or our own image or our own success. We're defined by Christ and we're defined by the Bible as his word. We are who he says we are. We, we do, therefore, what he says we do. We prioritize his mission and his purpose. And, 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 and his mission is other people. His mission and purpose and his desire is that the world will know that he is God. His desire is that those who are far away from him would be drawn close to him. Do you have that passion and desire? Or do you just walk past people and think, oh, well, someone else will come? I've had so many missed opportunities in my life where I go, God, I'm tired. Lord, I don't have time to meet with this person. I don't, I don't have energy for this. Or I, don't, I don't have resources for that. And, and there are times when I've regretted not being obedient to the word of God in that moment because God opened up a, a kairos moment, a, an opportune time to say something to someone who was in need. And I walked away. And here's the deal. I'm accountable to God for that one day. I'm going to stand before God and say, Lord, I messed up. God, I missed that opportunity. We need to repent, church. We need to repent of our sin of complacency, of being complicit in the spiritual death of people all around us because we walk by on the other side. Number two, we have to develop convictions and, and live them out. Have a look at verse 28. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this. Do this and you will live. You see, knowing God is not good enough. Knowing God and acting upon that knowledge is what God's desire and expectation is for your life. The Bible is not a, just a GPS for your spiritual life and for your, your well-being spiritually. That's not the truth at all. The, the Bible is God's word for you and is the, the standard, the values and beliefs that make up our lives. Number three, an important one in our culture, stop making excuses. Look at verse 29. It says, this man wanting to justify himself Ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? We live in a culture and a time where people are forever making excuses. Oh, I arrived late because traffic, or I couldn't do this because of that. But when it comes to the church, we make excuses all the time. When it comes to our spiritual walk with God, we make excuses all the time. And, and, and then when things get tough, we run to God and say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I know you. Jesus, help, 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 help. God is not some spiritual genie who we come to and rub and say, whew, ten wishes, right? Can't manipulate God. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to justify your lack of love for others because of whatever reason you might come up with. Learn to make your faith real just like Jesus did. 
I love the vision of this church. I love the pastors and leadership of this church. I've, I've been around for some years and seen it grow and, and develop. And, and, and I believe that God is calling you as a congregation to impact this culture deeply. But it's going to take all of you to see that happen. 500 people coming to faith this year excites me because that's 500 people in the kingdom of God. We need to be excited by that. We need to be enthused by that. But, but you have a role to play in this. You can't pass by on the other side. When you see someone in need, when you see someone that is broken, when you see someone whose life is messed up, you need to look and you need to pray for them and say, God, I believe that you can turn this life around. God, I believe that you could rescue this person. But here's the thing. God's going to use you to do it. Invite them. Bring them. Pray for them. And trust that God would do a work in their lives. Is it easy? Never. Is it worth it? You bet you. It's absolutely worth it.